Welcome to our LinkedIn Live conversation. I am Rick Franzi. Thank you for joining the conversation today. My purpose and the purpose of my coaching business is to help leaders to live impactful lives. My guest today is author Mauro Guion. I've invited Mauro to join us to discuss his new book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. Welcome, Mauro. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Rick. It's a pleasure to have you here. So let's get right into it. What is the organizing principle of your book, 2030? The organizing uh, principle is extremely simple, which is that in 10 years from now, the world will be unrecognizable. So many things are going to change that we better start thinking about what it's going to look like then so that we can be effective as leaders, but also, I think, uh, as ordinary citizens. Uh, that's the main message of the book. So, so this is not your first rodeo. You've written 10 different, this is maybe your 10th book. So, you, But you have been studying trends and uh, you have a wide range of topics that you've written about. Why did you select 2030 as the kind of date at which you were going to discuss the future? So 2030 is a pivotal year, Rick, for the following reason, which is by that time, we're going to see key demographic, technological, and economic trends uh, collide with one another and produce a very different situation. Uh, just to give you one example, by that year, we're going to have more grandparents than grandchildren in Europe and the United States. That's a big change. That is going to change markets. We're also going to see that Africa is going to be the second largest region in the world in terms of population. Uh, and that's going to be a big change. And China will be, by then, the largest consumer market in the world. Wow. Uh, those are just uh, three very important realities that are going to hit us by the year 2030. So here's the book, 2030, you can see, and the provocative subtitle. This is a fascinating read uh, as an author. Um, it's packed full of convincing statistics and facts, but it's a narrative that you can get your arms around and read as a business leader. Any CEO that's in the Renaissance Executive Forums global community or anywhere in the world actually should spend some time with Morrow's latest book. So let's discuss the rise of automation. Who will be affected with the next round of AI-fueled innovation, Morrow? Well, look, artificial intelligence is, of course, a very powerful technology. And um, the name uh, indicates that it is meant to be a substitute for human intelligence. And I think uh, we need to revise uh, that. I think it can be a complement. Uh, it's already being a complement in terms of uh, replacing part of the tasks that all of us do when it comes to cognitive tasks, right? So lawyers, consultants, uh, professors, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But also executives. Uh, I think there is somewhat of a danger that those jobs may become obsolete if artificial intelligence makes huge, huge progress. But I don't think that's going to happen by the year 2030. I think uh, what's, what we're going to see, Rick, is that artificial intelligence will become something that we use as yet another instrument, another tool to make us cognitive workers more effective at what we do. So that's interesting and provocative by the way you said that, because there are some futurists who talk about AI-fueled innovation as significantly changing the workplace for the cognitive worker, not just the manual worker, but the cognitive worker, whether that be a CPA, attorney, whatever, a professor. Uh, so uh, you see it as a much more complementary tool for our future rather than a replacement. I think uh, if we use the 2030, meaning a decade as our time horizon, then I strongly believe that it's going to be a complement more than a substitute. 
Now, beyond that point, of course, I'm sure companies that specialize in AI are going to continue pushing the limits, are going to continue making innovations. So we shall see. But I'm confident that for the next 10 years, we shouldn't worry about so much, you know, the destruction of cognitive jobs, such as the ones that we've been discussing. I think it's more going to be like how that technology is going to change what we do, what you do as a coach, what I do as a professor, what somebody else does in an executive position at a company. So you have, you know, I had to really cherry pick, ladies and gentlemen, just some questions because we have 20 minutes together. So I had to be careful on what we talked about because there's so much in this book and, and maybe we can have another chance, another bite at the apple. But you talk about the impact of the collaborative economy on property owners and then the downstream impacts of this. Can, can you share a little bit more of your perspective? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, we are at the beginning of this uh, sharing economy. Um, you know, we've all become used, especially before the pandemic, to Uber and Lyft and Airbnb. Uh, but I think we're going further into in the future in terms of this uh, sharing. And, and by the way, I think it may be a good thing if it helps us, for example, waste less food, which is one of the examples that I use in the book. Or if it helps us also consume fewer clothes. Uh, you see, clothing and agriculture are two of the most polluting industries in terms of carbon emissions in the world. Uh, down there in Southern California, where you are, I think you've become keenly aware of the importance of uh, perhaps building all of us a new relationship with the environment. And I think a lot of that will hinge on how we behave as consumers. So I strongly believe that the sharing economy over the next 10 years, uh, you know, all of those entrepreneurs that are launching new ventures to help us become better com consumers, uh, more conscious of uh, how much we waste, I think they can make a big difference in terms of our adjustment to the uh, climate change uh, phenomenon. So one of the other things that in your book that I plan to ask you about that you kind of mentioned at the open is that by, by 2030, more than half of the world's wealth will be owned by women. Um, that's obviously the first time in history that's the case. What will be the impacts of this? Well, look, uh, the impact will be very large uh, and it depends on how different you think women are from men, right? And of course, uh, on average, we know that women tend to be more risk averse. Uh, they tend to be more interested in security and uh, in the future. So think about consumer markets, for example. They're going to emphasize more investments and more spending on education, on healthcare. Also insurance, by the way, I mean, women prefer to carry more insurance. They prefer more comprehensive coverage. Uh, but there's also going to be big changes in the world of saving and investing. Because once again, if women tend to be more risk averse and they care more about the future, then, you know, there's going to be a lot of changes once uh, they own more than half of the wealth of the net worth in the world. So, so let's just sit on that for a second. Why will more than half of the wealth in the world world be owned by women? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, look, there's a primarily two things going on. The first is that women, unlike uh, two or three generations ago, they are staying in school, they're going to college, as you know, in greater numbers than men. And there, many of them pursue professional career paths. And therefore, as a result of that, they're making their own money uh, in greater numbers than in the past, not just here in the United States, but many other countries as well. Now, in spite of the fact that we continue to see um, pay discrimination, uh, you know, uh, against women at uh, many companies, um, this change is just so vast. I mean, we have more women graduating from college now, as, as you know. And then the other big factor is that women live longer on average. So right now here in the United States, 
is about uh, five and a half to six years longer than men on average, which means they stay healthier for a longer period of time. They can continue working longer. They can continue saving and investing. And then, of course, it increases the probability that they will inherit from their spouses or from their partners. So um, I'm talking with Mauro Guion. He's the author of up to, he's been the author of this is his 10th book, right, Mauro? Number yep. 10. And this is 2030. Uh, interesting because 2030 sounds like it's so far away. But as you write in this book, we're going to be at 2030 before we realize it, frankly. It, it, it's going to come quickly, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you remember 2010? Yes. Uh, that was the, um, you know, two years after Lehman Brothers, barely. Uh, that seems to me like, uh, you know, um, yesterday uh, or the day before yesterday. Look, right. uh, 10 years, uh, the more important thing about it is that companies, but I think also individuals, we need time to adjust. Mm -hmm. And the amount of time that we need to adjust to big changes depends on the magnitude of those changes. And also how many of those uh, things are going on, how many trends are uh, taking us in a very different direction. And right now, what we're seeing is all of these population trends, technological trends, economic trends coinciding in time with very, very large, uh, you know, magnitudes of change. And therefore, we need more time to adjust. So we're here in the U.S. and people around the world may watch this or watching it live or be picking it up later. But immigration, for those that maybe do not know, in the United States has been a hot button topic for some time. In the book, you talk about Canada as a model for immigration policy. Can you share with our audience what your research and your view is on that subject? Yes, look, uh, immigration is, of course, a very highly debated topic. And uh, for a good reason, which is, of course, that we would all prefer people not to have to move from one country to another. Uh, but the reality is that we have uh, more babies being born in some parts of the world and fewer in others. And also, of course, an economy such as that of the United States or California in particular uh, are very attractive because uh, we do create more jobs than can be filled by people born here in the United States. So one of the myths that I want to debunk in the book is that immigrants, for the most part, they don't compete uh, with locals, for example, with Americans uh, for jobs. For example, let me give you a very clear example. Between 25 and 35 percent of the doctors and the nurses that we have employed in the United States were born outside of the United States. We clearly don't um, you know, uh, educate enough doctors and nurses. But this happens across many different kinds of occupations. As you know, many American companies have complained over the last few years about restrictions on immigration. And the other thing that I want to mention is that here in the United States, uh, you remember when Nixon was president? That was a long time ago, right? Yes. Well, since then, we have not been replacing ourselves. In other words, we're having, since the 1970s, fewer than two children per woman in the United States. We would need at least two children per woman to grow without immigration. So population aging is a serious issue for the future. We need to plan for that. And I believe that other countries that are thinking more clearly about this and they're coming up with some rational, well thought out immigration policy are going to be in much better shape than we will be if we don't address the, the pluses and the minuses of immigration. I'm not saying that it's only benefits. There's also things that we need to regulate and that we need to take care of. It, it could, it's um, interesting to me how your your topics and your trends kind of are interrelated. They're not singular in their, they balance each other. So the fact that there'll be more grandparents than grandchildren in the United States means we have an aging population. 
yep. means we haven't been replacing ourselves at a rate that, and all of a sudden now it becomes that. Um, and immigration policy with bringing people into this country. It, these are, it's a fascinating read. Again, here's the book. Got the back of it. There's the front of it. 2030. Available everywhere, right, Mauro? Yes. You, you can get this book everywhere. And Amazon is probably a good place to start if you're an Amazon shopper. Um, but, you know, I'm wondering, because I have CEOs and business owners who I work with who listen to the, to the program, who are interested in the thoughts of people like you. How can we as business leaders approach the societal transformations with optimism and, a, and seize the opportunities that they arise? I think that's one of the powers of this book is helping people to forethink what's going to be going on. Well, look, I teach at a business school, as you know, at the Wharton School. And I spend my entire time uh, when I'm at the office, essentially, thinking about what is it that businesses can do to address some of the biggest problems that we have. And in so doing, by the way, make a profit, right? Uh, and pay good wages to their employees. So I see all of these trends that I discuss in the book as big opportunities for business to, both large and small, by the way, uh, to uh, offer solutions to those problems, right? Uh, so think climate change, uh, think about economic inequality, uh, think about, uh, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, uh, yes, some people are accumulating wealth, but others are not. Uh, I think uh, businesses can help us also, by the way, uh, revitalize some of the cities and uh, the downtown areas that we have, uh, you know, that have declined in this country for, for so many, so many years. So I think the proper role of business, of course, should be, you know, to succeed at what they do, to pay their employees the best possible wages and to make a profit. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think uh, that the government or that nonprofit organizations by themselves can address, uh, you know, most of these challenges that are going to be facing us over the next uh, decade or so. I think businesses need to play a positive role in that effort. I agree with you. Matter of fact, Renaissance Executive Forum is a community that I'm a part of. We believe that leaders can have a positive impact in the world and are actually vital to kind of the evolution of, of man in, in a business sense. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, Mauro. Now, your book came out earlier this year in the spring, right? Uh, it came out at the end of August, uh, okay, so sorry, barely sorry. a month ago. All right. Sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. But I know that you had to, and you do, address the trends and the impact of COVID-19 on the trends. So I'm just curious, from your perspective, um, all that's in there, what would you talk to our audience about? What has COVID-19 done to the trends that you were studying and researching prior to publishing the book? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Rick. And uh, uh, look, uh, pandemics, uh, or more broadly, this big crisis that sometimes uh, hit uh, the economy and the uh, and the society, uh, they come in two categories. So one of them is crises that change everything and reverse existing trends, okay? Uh, and then we have a second category of crisis uh, in which I think uh, we find COVID-19, which is events that essentially exacerbate or intensify pre-existing trends. And COVID-19, I think, is that kind of a crisis. Look, uh, the, the best example is technology. Uh, e-commerce was going on before the pandemic, was already growing. But the pandemic has greatly accelerated e-commerce. For example, I never thought that small businesses that have uh, physical stores would go online. But the pandemic, the lockdowns, forced them to go online. And you know what? Once the pandemic is over, they're not going to shut down their online operations. 
they're going to combine their brick and mortar and their online operations uh, in, in the future after the pandemic is over. And another example, by the way, is the one that we've been talking about, population aging, which is going to reshape the U.S. as well as many other countries around the world. Well, the pandemic accelerates that trend of population aging because guess what? When there's a big crisis such as this, people postpone having babies. Uh, so if the fertility, the number of babies drops, at least momentarily, that in and of itself also accelerates population aging. So for the most part, I see acceleration in this pandemic of the trend. So my only regret, Rick, is actually the following. Instead of uh, using 2030 as the title of the book, I should have used 2028 because here's the urgency. The future is arriving faster as a result of this pandemic, much faster than we thought. That's uh, a sobering thought, Mauro, uh, that it's actually accelerating. So if you mentioned that you, you teach at Wharton, if, if someone would like to learn more about you as a speaker and an author, as well as an educator, how do they get in touch with you or learn more about you? Well, uh, they can get in touch with me over LinkedIn uh, or also by sending me an email. Uh, they can easily find my contact information online if they Google me. And I should also say that I have two websites uh, and they're linked. So one is uh, moroguillen.com, my first and last name with no spaces. And the other one is um, at the Wharton School. So you can uh, you can also Google me and, uh, and you will find me. And I have a lot of materials there, by the way, free uh, videos and uh, PowerPoint presentations and all sorts of things uh, that people can also uh, download uh, or explore if they're so inclined. But by all means, I would encourage uh, you know, your followers um, to get in touch with me, uh, especially via email or through LinkedIn, and I'm happy to start a conversation with them. So at the end of the day, what has been the response to 2030? Well, look, I get two kinds of responses. Um, so um, I am making a lot of presentations every day. Uh, right now I'm doing it online, of course. And uh, I get two kinds of reactions, okay, when I make presentations about the material in the book. The first reaction is, oh, I knew about every single isolated thing that you've been telling me, right? <laughs> However, I never thought about how they are interconnected, which is the point that you made earlier. How do they relate to one another and how in being interrelated, interconnected, they actually produce even faster change, right? And more massive changes. And then the second thing that I always get as a reaction in response to the material in the book is, Boy, I never thought about that little example, right? So I knew, for example, that, uh, you know, there's an American company that makes a spherical barbecues, right? A very famous barbecue company here. Right. But they tell me, I never knew that they were so successful in India. And you see, Rick, the challenge there was who in the world in India, right, of all places, eats hamburgers, right, made of beef. Uh, so the company, this American company, succeeded in the Indian market beginning about eight years ago or so by persuading Indian consumers, which is the new middle class, hey, you have to think, right, about barbecues as a social thing, right? Not necessarily as something that you associate with hamburgers. So this is just a very simple example as to how, for example, we see a successful company in the United States uh, that has a product that perhaps would never succeed in a place like India, but hey, the Indian consumer market is growing very fast. And after China's, will eventually become the second biggest in the world. And here you go. You have an American firm that has succeeded over there. And 
if if we can get you back sometime or get you in front of a different audience, I would love to spend time on the impact of the growing middle class in other parts of the world, Africa, India, China, and what that's from a from a consumer's perspective, but also from an entrepreneur's perspective, where are those opportunities based on this increase in the middle class? Would you be interested in that conversation? Absolutely. I would be delighted, Rick, to spend more time with you because uh, I, I actually think that the questions that you're asking uh, strike the right balance between being challenging, uh, but also being you know, relevant to what's going on right now in the world. Well, there's so much in this book, ladies and gentlemen. You see it over his shoulder, 2030. Um, if you, if you love to learn about the future, if you're curious at all about what's coming, if you have a business and you're a CEO and you're doing a five and a 10 year plan, you got to read the book. You got to understand the trends, I believe. They will help you and your management team and your leadership team to plan for a brighter future. So Mauro, thank you very much for giving me your time. I've really enjoyed this brief conversation that we've had today here on LinkedIn. Thank you for inviting me, Rick. And for our audience, those that are listening live or catching it as a recording, I hope you have enjoyed my conversation with Mauro Guion. These conversations are designed to provide you with insights and ideas that can help you to live impactful lives. I would ask that you connect or follow me on LinkedIn if we're not already a first-level connection. And as I mentioned earlier, my business partner is Renaissance Executive Forums. We're a global network of business leaders powered by collective intelligence. I would encourage you to reach out to the Renaissance Executive Forum's partner in your city or your country to learn more about our global community of leaders. And until our next time that we get together, I hope these kind of talks help you to live an impactful life. Mauro, again, thank you so much. You're such a gentleman. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you, Rick.